Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I hope you're having an absolutely wonderful day. It's still deliciously lovely in Melbourne. We've had some really hot days, but today is quite manageable. And I'm saying that as someone who grew up in New Zealand, which is a little bit cooler. Now, we've had a great month in the studio. As I mentioned in our last episode, we had quite a rush in January, and that was really great. We also sold out some workshops. We got to finally meet Caralia Grant, who we had on the podcast a while back, and her workshop was absolutely wonderful. I just love her philosophy and practice. We also got the opportunity to meet a few of our listeners, so that was fantastic as well. In addition, Joe sold out her suspended sound workshop, which was really exciting. So we'll be doing that again on the 3rd of March. I wasn't there myself, but by all accounts, it was a really special experience. I'll leave a link with more details in the show notes. All right, I better get on with introducing today's guest. This episode is a recorded conversation between myself, co-host Joe Stewart and Joe Tito. Joe Tito is an artist, photographer, meditator, and generally amazing person. And I'm not just saying that because we're related. Now, her work has a real sense of nature, Maori spirituality, and groundedness, which is why we have some of it in our studio, Garden of Yoga. Joe has a lot of wisdom, and she's been lucky enough to travel the world sharing her art and collaborating with other indigenous artists. All right, I've talked for way too long now, so let's get to know and understand the creative nature of Joe Tito. Kia ora, Joe. So good to catch up with you. And just out of curiosity, how are we related again? So, your mum, Shirley, yep. and me were first cousins. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you're called Tidy, and my dad are brothers. So he's an older brother of my dad. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You know, we've got so many relatives that I know it's hard to keep track. <laughs> yeah, we do. I think from all our brothers and sisters, like when my mom, my dad's generation, mm-hmm. there's about sixty of us first cousins. Wow. I know yeah, there's about, about twenty 60. of us in, in my family. So yeah. you guys have got heaps, like Queen Norm, Auntie Norma, mm. and Uncle Tidy had lots of kids, and you guys have had lots of kids, so. Yeah. Or the Fana has. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry, everyone else is doing enough for everybody. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, on that on that note, perhaps you could start by just telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Yeah, cool. So I grew up in Rotorua. My mother's from Tiarawa, Rotorua in the Bay of Plenty, and here in Aotearoa. I grew up in a little village about five kilometres south of Rotorua, and because my dad, he worked in the sawmill there, so we all lived in, if your parents worked in the sawmill, then you lived in the state houses in the village. So, yeah, so it was a quite close-knit community. Really nice. I mean, I really enjoyed that kind of upbringing, and I think it set the pathway for me. Um, later on in life I lived close to the bush too Um, so I really loved nature as a child and then later on it was to be something that's quite an important part of my life and my creativity so grew up there and then I moved to Auckland for a couple of years I actually lived with cousin Kitty and Tina Whareopodi lived with them for a couple of years and Ruanui up in Auckland was doing some Mahi Wadahi Wai which is a dance company that Tina had up in Auckland and then when I was in Auckland 
that's actually when I discovered meditation. Well, before you go on, so yep. the meditation part of the dance practice or is that something you discovered separately? Yeah, no, it was when I was living in Auckland. I mean, I had just left Rotorua. I was a little bit unsure about what I was going to do. And I went to Auckland. Tina said, oh, come up to Auckland, come and do this. And so I said, okay. You know, I wasn't had no clear direction. So I went up there and a couple of my friends had done Vipassana meditation and they said, oh, they came back from the course and said, oh, you really need to go and do this. And I was at that point in my life, I was 24 at the time, I was at a point where I was looking for something, I was searching and it was perfect timing. So I went and did a course that ended up becoming a big part of my life for the next six years and I practiced constantly for six years. I did about 20 courses and if you know Vipassana meditation, it's not the easiest of forms of meditation to do. You're sitting for 10 days in silence, meditating nine hours a day. So, But it really set the pathway for me. I gave up a lot of things as well. I gave up smoking, I gave up drinking, which was great for me and it really taught me about being present and experiencing sensations in the body, which was quite new to me at the time. And I've done a lot of different types of meditations since then, but I can honestly say that's probably one of the tools that I would keep using over and over again because you're working at the level of sensation in the body and it so helped me so much and it's always something that I can go back to um, if I need it. Yeah, no, that's a really beautiful explanation of that practice as well. And I know that you're an artist now. I'd love to hear about how your meditation practice informs your art. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, over the years I've learned, you know, some people say, oh, you have to get into a certain space to create. And I've learned over the years that, you know, it's not like you have to get in this kind of creative mode. You either do or you don't. It's a bit like, you know, if you're going to go for a walk, you take that next step to go for the walk. It's not like I have to go and sit and meditate for 15 minutes to get creative. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, sometimes... Um, Oh, sorry to interrupt, but like sometimes creativity can be the way into that state of mind. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of the art forms that I've chosen, like rock painting, for example, is very meditative. And when I do paint on stones, it is a meditative process for me. And it always has been from the gathering of the stone to painting on the stone and photographing the stone as well, too. So and photography has become something that's quite meditative for me too, where you kind of get into that zone. Photography is a really interesting one as well, because to notice the images that you want to photograph, it really yeah. requires you to be very present and very... Important. Yeah, definitely. And I think you can't, there's just no way you can not be present in nature because you're there and however you're experiencing it, you're always present in there and with the photography I've been doing photography for about 25 years now and it's one of those things that I don't even have to think about like I've always got my camera eyes on especially if I'm out of nature and you just see things you see that special light and you go oh there's a great image but it's very intuitive now whereas it's not something I have to plan or go looking for it's something that presents itself it's a bit like when I go gathering for my stones, it's the same thing. Like over time, the stones started appearing and, and sparkling or say, pick me, pick me. It's that kind of process that is very intuitive and connected. I think that's the other thing is you've got to have that connection 
and however you do that, I mean, for me, again, it's a bit like my connection to the land, to the whenua. I can't, I can't even explain how that is. It just is. I'm very much a part of nature, and so I have that kind of connection that is automatic. I don't have to make myself be connected, if you know what I mean, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And there's just some things that you can't really put into words, like it's much bigger than that. And totally. Returning to that theme of connection and your rock gathering and painting project, we've got three of your beautiful artworks mm. in our You studio. do. And we just chose them based on the image. But then hearing the stories behind each one were all really beautiful stories of family and connection. And would you like to just kind of go into that aspect of that project? Because it's got a really personal kind of element to it as well as that more universal connection to nature it does and the really beautiful thing I love about that project even today seven years later because I did that project in 2011 is that the stones and their stories and even the images are just as relevant today as they were back then and still today I go back and read the stories of the stones and I look at the images and I think wow that's so relevant for me today just as it was back then. And when I did that project, it was because I, I didn't feel like I was creating enough and I wanted something that was going to help me create. That was the, the main purpose of doing that project. Like and it was interesting. Yeah, it was a daily discipline and giving me something to focus on every day. And when I first decided to do it, it was interesting because I had so much fear to do that because it was like I'd never really put my work out there like that and to do it every day and to commit to every day for the whole year was like if I was to push that button and, and send this message out, that's it. There's no going back. And so I sent it off onto Facebook. I posted it and I deleted it five times. I did that oh. five times. <laughs> and the last one I was like, no, I'm going to leave it. And I just left it and I didn't go back and look at it until the next day. And then I saw that I had lots of people who had come and said, oh, wow, that's cool. And so, yeah, I pretty much got started on that project and so much more came out of that than what I expected. I connected with so many different people all around the world. Some of them who I've met in person and are good friends now. I travelled with the Stones as well. Like I had an art residency that same year in Australia. So I took some stones over with me to carry on the project while I was there. But I also, during that time while I was in Aussie, I painted stones in the landscape as well. So some of the stones you might see that are actually in the landscape that have been painted with some natural ochres that were given to me by an Aborigine guy over there. And then I travelled to Turkey that same year. So I took stones with me there as well to complete, you know, to carry on the project while I was there. And I left stones there and it was such an amazing project. And the stone the stories and the photographs were important and people connected with them in different ways some people connected with the stones some with the stories and some with the the photographs like I got lots of comments about the photographs as well and that became very much a part of my process too was to I didn't want any just any photograph I wanted a photograph that was gonna add to that story of that stone as well too so yeah, like yeah. a layer to it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Do you feel like you tap into a different aspect of yourself and of your creativity when you're expressing yourself in these different mediums, like the painting and the photography and then the written word as well? Or is it all just flowing from the same place, just expressed in a different way? I think so. I think it's definitely flowing from the same place. And 
like what I was saying before is that it's not something I can kind of put my finger on or explain or there's no kind of words for it it just is it's just there and I think going back to what we talked about connection before and having awareness like being present and aware with whatever it is that I'm doing because I don't think I'd be able to be creating the way that I do if I'm not present with what's in front of me. And I guess we haven't actually asked like how did you discover art and discover that you wanted to be an artist? As a child, I've always wanted to be an artist and I've had people tell me, you know, that I wanted to be an artist when I was little and, you know, we used to roam a lot as kids and, you know, I think back now, you know, I was quite young and we were roaming alone. It's like, oh, we were our parents. (laughs) (laughs) You're roaming in the bush, but actually in hindsight, it was such a a blessing because... And sounds like you came out of it fine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I've always been a free-spirited person and that's how I've lived my life and you haven't really had too many nine to five jobs because I find that really hinders just the whole flow of my life and my and my creativity so I've always been creative when I used to roam in the bush when I was a kid I'd always be there making a house out of the ferns and the bark and you know whatever was around and that was playtime and I think it came from there really but the interesting thing is that, that I never studied art in school it wasn't until I left school somewhere along the way I think while I was at school it got lost and I just wasn't interested in it or nothing was put in front of me to kind of spark that and me to help me remember what was already there and so it wasn't until I left and still searching when I left school I did have plans to go to university and then I didn't end up going to university and I decided to do an art course and it was pretty much then this was about two years after I'd left school when I discovered photography and I just bought myself a camera and taught myself photography and it pretty much came from there I've been creating ever since And I imagine that as an artist, you probably have quite a few people coming up to you or connecting with you online and just saying, I wish I could do that, or I'd love to be able to paint, but I don't have the talent. What's your advice to people who want to explore their own creativity, but who are maybe lacking a bit of confidence? Like what do you think tends to hold people back? Definitely all the time, people are really, yeah, like you say, oh, I love what you're doing. I wish I could do that. I I can't do that. Or I don't have the time. I hear it so often. And It's interesting because I do think that people are quite fearful, like especially in terms of being a full-time artist, a lot of people are quite envious of that. But I think, I mean, I've always been quite a free-spirited person, but a lot of people who have had jobs might find it a bit difficult to kind of leave that security, that financial security, to kind of go out and, and be an artist. But even just going to create, and if I can talk a little bit about school, you know, I was just thinking, I've been on a, a workshop the last couple of days, and it's kind of made me think about school and what school can do sometimes is really squash a child's creativity if it's not guided in the right way and so when we're adults and we're trying to kind of find our creativity or we want to be creative there's always that you know and I think as you get older too you kind of lose that that spark and that fear kind of could possibly get bigger and so you don't want to go there and we tend to be more like I notice with people you know as adults we tend to be more correcting with our work or not allowing. Yeah, there's less play to it. Yeah, yeah. 
And I think that's a good a good word is just play and enjoy and enjoy it. And you know, when I was decided to become a full time artist, it really kind of changed everything. That kind of reality set in. So you have to find that balance between keeping that passion for your creativity and that love and joy and play and creating and balance that with being able to financially sustain yourself. Because when I first started, I actually went to the other end of the scale and I lost that passion because of the reality of oh gosh you've got to make an income a lot of being a full-time artist is writing grants or planning projects like it's yeah active creativity even though it- yeah so true and you've got to one thing I learned is that you've got to be plan planning ahead at least six months and have things on the go because then you get stuck if you don't and I think sometimes that's a bit of a hard headspace for people to get into. Like you say, there's all that other stuff that some people don't like doing, like the marketing and, like, say, finding funding to do things, which is an ongoing thing as well with projects. And I think with looking for funding and even putting yourself out there on social media, all of those things require quite a bit of confidence. So if you are at a bit of a low point, it makes it even harder to kind of generate the energy you need for that side of things. Definitely, definitely. And so do you have any like helpful practices for yourself to keep the creative energy flowing or to help you when you get stuck? I think it's just taking that step and just going to do it. Yeah, like just there's, start. There's, yeah, just start. Just start. There's, there's just no other way. Just start. And I think it, that can kind of transfer to other things as well. You know, if you need to go for a walk or you need to go and do yoga, just go and put that mat out and go and stand on the mat. <laughs> you know, it's, that's how I've got to the mat sometimes is just – lay it out and go and stand on it and then what happens is that kind of energy that momentum carries on and you end up taking the next step and the next step and I think I'm lucky too because I have lots of avenues for creativity like for me too gardening is creativity for me and I'm always out in the garden at least once a day and it's a place where I get a lot of my inspiration from and a lot of my healing from as well too so that that would be my top tip (laughs) to start just go do it and start I know that you also teach a lot of workshops I'd love to know some of the joys and challenges you encounter with that and also if you've got any strategies that you've developed that really help to facilitate that group creative energy and kind of help to create a really great workshop I've taught photography for the last Eight, uh, eight years now, eight, nine years. And I teach digital photography and darkroom photography. And it's quite nice because they're quite different. So darkroom photography, we do, we make pinhole cameras and we work in the darkroom and the process is very organic and you don't quite know what kind of images you get out of that. And then digital photography is more, I mean, you see, you know, you take your photos and you can see what you've got. So I enjoy teaching teaching both of those. I have taught rock painting in the past as well and flex paper making, although I haven't taught those two for a little while. I think you you just have to kind of feel, you know, you get different people coming from different backgrounds and different energies and you just kind of, you soon know who's in your group and, and what kind of energies people are bringing and you just work with that. And I think it helps when you have smaller numbers as well, because it means that you can help people more intimately. Although when I teach the students, sometimes I have up to 25 students in a room. So what I tend to do is try to give them group exercises as well, where they can do things together, because it's so hard to get around to each one individually. And it helps them to focus too. If they're in groups doing group exercises, then they all have something to focus on. It gives them, I think it helps 
you know, if you have someone who's not so confident and then they're in a group situation, you can kind of help each other too. It can just kind of help to have a few other perspectives to kind of bounce things off of. and Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I'd really love to know about your approach to working in groups yourself because I saw your project Peace Vandala on your website and it sounds really beautiful. Um, would you like to describe it to us? So I did the, the Rock a Day project, which was the 365-day project in 2011. And this, I did a Mandela project, 100 days project with the Mandela. So I created 100, this was back in 2014, 15, I think it was. And I created 100 Mandela and, and each, it was the first 70 had a haiku poem to go with it as well. And each of the Mandela. tree as well. I did, yeah. I did each of the, well, the first 70, I did the haiku poem with those ones. And then so out of that, I mean, I had never, I had just started creating them and each of them were created from my nature images. And so out of that, I had all these mandala that I'd created that all had these messages. And I was going to an art residency, one that I've been to since 2011, which is actually at home in Taranaki. And the kaupapa or the theme was water and peace. And it just, it just fitted perfectly. Like it was, it was something that I could, it was an opportunity to use some of those mandala that I had created for that project. And so if it's the one that I'm thinking of that you're talking about is what I did was I created, so I had them all created digitally already. I put them into some software and then they started moving. And then that was a projection across some water at night time at Pukekura Park in Taranaki. And then I had a soundtrack in the background, which a friend of mine, Leah Barclay, she's an amazing sound musician from Brisbane, from Sunshine Coast, actually. Her and I had created this soundscape back in 2011, and we used that same one. It was me playing Stones, recording that, and me also singing a bit of a waiata on there, a bit of a song. And then she created a soundscape from that, and that was the sound that was used to go with that projection of the mandala across the water. And it was all about, I mean, the theme was water and peace, and, and you know, water's water's amazing and, and from a Māori perspective I mean, I've always well not always but since 2011 I had done a lot of projects that connected back to wai or water and for us as Māori when we say ko waio we are saying who am I and wai which is water is central to that who am I that's the the main part of that, who am I, is water, which makes sense on so many levels. You know, water is very much a part of us. It's a part of the earth. And it's that flow, you know, the flow of water is where we can find peace. You know, when water's flowing, when things are flowing, there's that kind of peace that we can have if, you know, our water's flowing. And it's that connection, connection to water that we have that gives us that confidence and stability and that security and connection to who we are, which brings in inner peace. So, yeah, I'm not sure if that explains. Oh, that was a beautiful, that. beautiful yeah. You did the 365-day project and a 100-day project. After you did both of these, did it really sort of change your process in terms of creativity? Did it maybe even turbocharge things? Because I think, like... <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of such an immense amount of practice even that you're getting in there. It must have affected your work in in some way positively, I'm guessing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had 
these huge bodies of work. That was one of the awesome things is that I had done these projects and at the end of it, I had these works that I'm still using today that I can always go back to and use. And I, yeah, definitely it has changed the way it definitely gave me confidence as well, you know, doing those projects. I mean, not saying that I had full confidence when I was doing them because honestly, some days are really tough, even just getting to the stone and the paintbrush to paint on a stone. There were days that were quite challenging and then there were other days that were flowing. So there was always that kind of up and it was always an up and down process. It was never kind of smooth sailing because there's life that, happens and things get in the way or things don't go according to plan and and you just have to to roll with it and I think some of the you know some of the stories that came out in the stones and even in the mandala and the haiku poem were very much a reflection of what was going on in my life at the time Mm -hmm. so they were an outlet for getting something out or you know going through a healing process that all came out in in the art and art has always been a a healing thing for me too like the photography as well as is it's all being a healing healing journey and it is and that's it it's yeah it's been a journey it's always a journey it's never it's a process it's never kind of a, a complete thing I get as well the connection between say your meditation practice and your daily gardening and these long ongoing projects it's like you can't make a garden in a day it's just a little bit at a time you've got to wait for nature to take its course and you can't just do one really great meditation session and then you're set for life like all of these things are inherently just like one little piece at a time but then over time it really evolves and yeah yeah I really see that thread running through everything that you do in a really beautiful way yeah and you're definitely right about the, you know, you can't make a garden in a day or it's it's one thing I've learned, especially with gardening, actually, it's patience. You know, you have to have patience. And I think as I've gotten older as well, I approach my creativity in a, in a different way. Like I, I'm more, it's different. Like, I, and I think that just is coming with, you know, with experience in life as you, you're constantly changing and shifting and growing. And so everything that you do and everything that you are changes and grows and and shifts and moves too. So it's funny sometimes when people say, well, you know, you get asked the question, who are you? What do you do? And like every time, honestly, I have a different answer because Mm -hmm. I'm always changing. And it is actually what I'm feeling in that moment as well about who I am and what what I do. It's one of those things that changes, changes often. And, you know, I'm always getting inspiration all the time, every day. I'm, someone who has a zillion ideas I have no lack of ideas and when people say oh I've got no ideas or you know where, where do you get your ideas from it's like oh have some of mine it's like you know <laughs> this is constant constant flow of ideas and I'm always and it's you know when I'm doing mundane tasks which aren't actually mundane you know when, when I'm in the garden or or just going for a walk something will just pop into my head and I go oh that's a cool idea it's funny I've got about 30 ideas books that I've had over the years and they're all full with ideas and you know half of the stuff I haven't even written down but sometimes I've got I use Evernote on my phone and I'll just 
kind of write down something if I something pops up and then I'll come back to it later and see if it comes to fruition but I've got so many ideas that coming in all the time that I can't even keep up with stuff so mm, that I guess yeah. it's all about how do you prioritize and how do you schedule these things and how do you yeah from oh, I've got all these things I could do which one am I going to put my energy into and focus on yeah yeah and and that's right and for me it's always come back to well, what's my vision what is what is it that I'm about? And if it doesn't fit into that, then I just kind of put it to the side. I mean, most things that do, most of the ideas that, that I do come up with are actually, they, they're coming up because they're very much a part of my life. But I always, yeah, in the last few years, I've used my vision for life as the guiding thing, I suppose, to say whether I follow something or not, because I've had, it's, been a really good way to make decisions because I've been really indecisive in the past and being indecisive is terrible like you have a zillion things to do and you just don't do anything I find that really helpful if I have my vision and know what I'm about that guides me in the things that I do Hello, Ran here, just popping in to break things up a little. Well, that's a little bit disingenuous, I guess, because I'd really like to ask you to like, share, or subscribe to the Flow Artist Podcast if you could. It would really help us reach a wider audience, and wouldn't you just love to be able to say, I was into the Flow Artist Podcast before it was cool? Who am I kidding? We'll never be cool. Also, there is still time to vote for us in the Australian Podcast Awards. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Right back to our conversation with Joe Tito. And so how did you refine your vision? Was that like a process that you went through or just something that evolved on its own? In the beginning, it was something that, it, that I just had. So my vision is inspire, uplift and heal through nature and creativity. And I had a friend who actually helped people organize their lives and all sorts of things like cleaning out the clutter and doing that kind of thing and we refined that vision even more and just over the last actually the last couple of months I've revisited it again and just looked at it and just looked at everything that I'm about and at the moment I'm at art nature and healing those three things and my vision is still that vision but I'm looking at can it change now or is that going to stay the same I mean all of those things art nature creativity and healing and inspiring people you know I've always wanted to to help people and and inspire people to do things even if it's just you know a few words that I've said or something like that that has helped someone in their day or whether it's encouraged people to to create more or be better people I think definitely with the Stones Project comes to mind, the way that you kind of shared that as an ongoing blog and the story behind each piece, I think yep. that kind of a personal sharing of your process can be really inspiring because yep. it's not just showing someone this perfect finished artwork, which can sometimes be a little bit daunting. Well, I think if you're showing each little step of the journey and breaking it down like that, that really does make it accessible to people. It's like you can start small. You can just do a little thing every day and then over time it becomes this amazing, big, beautiful thing that can touch a lot of people. Yeah, and that that project really inspired a lot of people. And 
And I didn't realise that that's what it was going to do. I mean, like I said, the intention was just to be creating more and to be sharing that journey with other people. And But so many people connected with the stones, the stories, the photos, and it helped people so much. And, you know, I had people, people started following, so they'd be waiting because they'd be posting them every day. So they'd be waiting for today's stone. I had people book birthday stones. And your sister, Cassia, she booked a stone for her son, um, Ran. Oh, yeah. She, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so she's got one of the stones too. So I had people connecting in that way. And... Yeah, it was oh, it's so beautiful. Just I could never have imagined that that was going to happen. And another beautiful thing was that so people would come and comment on the stones and all the comments are still there on Facebook as well. And they'd have conversation with the stones. It is beautiful. And I had some really awesome followers who were constant throughout the whole year and would give these amazing extra stories to these stones and add some more colour and life to them and other perspectives to them. And so now, seven years later, I've just started mapping them because they're all around the world. So I'm wanting to create an online map in Google Earth, but also a wall map and just pin them all where all the stones are around the world. And because the idea after I finished the project, so many people wanted me to make a book. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to make a book. And like seven years later, I still haven't made the book. So that's the plan as well, is to actually make a book from the stones to, as well, stones and the stories. I'm sure you've got enough going on with the book. And I know. Thought about, but I've actually just had this questions just come into my mind. Like, have you ever thought of doing one of these everyday projects, like an open it up to other people and maybe doing it like a collaborative project or just kind of you set the theme and everyone does their own little thing but stays in touch with each other so the 100 days project it was actually a national project and it actually was global so anybody could come and do that and it was run from a website so everybody had their own kind of little mini website on this website where you added your creativity every day to this website so that was a kind of a collaborative um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and there was a group of us here in Gisborne where I live and we all, there was about seven of us. We all did it together and we ended up having an exhibition at the museum here in Gisborne as well of the works after we had done that project. And it was such a cool thing to do with other people because, you know, you encourage each other and because it's not easy to create every day. And I mean, sometimes I think I'm a bit crazy. <laughs> Doing 365 was like, oh gosh, and 100 is 100 is still, you know, it's a bit of a marathon too. So you've mentioned it previously that you know a lot of your work is sort of informed by um, your Maori culture, and I was just wondering if you could perhaps go into that a little bit more. For example, I know the the rocks, most of them have sort of a koru design on them. But I was sort of wondering how much your Māori background really affects your work. So when I was living in Auckland, it was the stones that actually called me home, the stones and the land and our mountain, of course, that our beautiful mountain. And so my journey with the stones actually began while I was in Auckland. And it was for me, it was a, a calling that I felt that I had to go home. And for me, our stones are one of our most ancient storytellers. And so it was always it's always been really important for me to tell those stories. And the process for me in creating the stones have always started with the spiral somewhere on the rock and everything comes out from there. That's always been my process. And so for me, that connection 
to the stones is also connection to the whenua where I'm from in Taranaki, connection to, to my mountain. And I think it's more my connection to nature. Again, I'm, tr- I'm still trying to figure, it's really difficult to explain that connection because it already it already is. You know, when you have that sense of belonging to a place, it's it just is. Like, it's really hard to kind of say where I'm, this is how I'm connected to this land because I just am connected to this land. So I think in terms of my connection to who I am as Māori, is that connection to the whenua that we have, that intrinsic connection to that place where we belong, that gives us our security and confidence, which is also our language as well. Like That was the other thing when I moved home to Taranaki, because I kind of, it's funny, you know, these transient times that I had going between places were times where I didn't quite know what I was up to, but I knew that I had to go there. And that was the same from going to Auckland to Tanaki. It's like, I really have no idea why I'm going to Tanaki. It's where I'm from. It's my home, but I'm just getting called to go there. And I guess I'll find out when I get there. <laughs> and and I did. And, and the stones were one of them. And also my creativity really blossomed while I was over there as well. But I also learned te reo Māori. And I had learned Māori in school, but it was not heaps you know it was like two hours a week and that was it but when I went home to Taranaki I learned for a whole year total immersion so in Te Reo Māori and it was the best thing that I had done because it really solidified the language within me and it and I never looked back after that and for me that our language is you know connection to the whenua to the land every word connects back to nature and it's so, once you're thinking in Te Reo Māori, it's a whole new world. And when I you know, was learning the language and I discovered that and the more I was learning and the more I was thinking in Te Reo Māori, it just changed my whole world and my whole perspective on life. And it just made me appreciate even more, especially living at home in Taranaki as well. It made me appreciate even more the beauty of our culture and our language and how important and special it is. And to learn at home in Taranaki on my whenua at home just made it even more special because it connected me into that land as well. And I did a lot of my healing at that time. I mean, our mountain is just so healing and beautiful and, and very powerful. So it kind of, that's the other thing. It, I'm quite sensitive when I go home. There's a lot of emotion that comes up for me. You know, when I'm driving into Tamanaki and see the mountain, it's like automatically all this emotion kind of comes up because it's quite a strong, well, for me anyway, very spiritual part of the landscape. I agree. Um, it's, it's such an almost iconic image really, isn't it? Just that yeah, huge. Yeah. Most days it's blue <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I know you've travelled around the world and, and collaborated with other Indigenous artists. Would you like to talk about that, perhaps? The most recent Indigenous collaboration that I have, which is ongoing, is with um, Stacey Adlock McDonald, who's Inuit. She lives up in the Arctic Circle. And her and I met in 2013 in Taranaki. She came to an art residency that I was on as well. And we just got on like a house on fire over there. And and I think it was because we were literally poles apart and we were just so fascinated with each other's cultures and how similar we were, but also how different as well. 
and different being because we do live at opposite ends of the earth and you know she's way up north and we're down south it's very cold up there and you know we're in the pacific down here in the south and so our relationship began there and our journey to work with each other began there so her and I we traveled to Vancouver in 2015 there was a a conference there called ISEA, which is an international symposium of electronic art. And they had an Indigenous forum, and her and I were both speaking at that Indigenous forum. So we ended up getting there and meeting up and then going to the conference and also talking about our project that we were going to work on and how we were going to go about doing that. So when we were in Vancouver, our project that we've got is called Walking in Circles, and it came about, that name came about, we were walking back from an exhibition to the place that we were staying and we ended up walking around in circles getting lost (laughs) (laughs) and realized we had ended up back at the same place that we had started and and so we called our project walking in circles but also as a reflection of an indigenous way of thinking in circles and the stories that we wanted to tell through our journey with our project so the project is it's basically at the moment it's us online having conversation with each other about whatever's happening in our lives at the time, you know, in our different parts of the landscape and sharing stories about language, about kai, food, about, you know, the weather. I mean, the, the landscape is so different up there, very cold. Like, we'd have conversations. that will be in the middle of winter up there and, you know, they've got minus 50 degrees and, we're you know, we're in the middle of summer and it's, you know, 30-plus degrees. And so just you know those kinds of stories that we'd share with each other and also like traditional stories as well and and language and yeah and so she came back here to New Zealand just last year we had an art residency in Ma here and she brought her daughter Nala Joss with her and so we got to connect again and further develop our project and have more conversation and we've just got our website back up and running again with some of our stories and we're looking at meeting again somewhere in the world probably up in Canada to further yeah hang out with each other and further develop our project and in the meantime we'll be having just continuing to have conversations so that was one of the projects um, that's still ongoing I spent a little bit of time in Indonesia back in 2008 in a beautiful place called Sukabumi and there's a beautiful bush there called Tanakita and it was for a It was actually for a video activism conference and I was lucky enough to be invited there with a whole lot of other video activists from around the world. Um, There were a few, a lot of Asian um, video activists there and it was quite interesting to be a part of that because I'd never experienced that um, type of video activism before and they're very, very active in a whole lot of lot of areas all around Asia in terms of video. Could you explain what exactly video activism is? Yeah, so it's using video as a tool to for whether it's political activism or social change or mm-hmm. yeah, using it to share stories that help a lot of the times minorities in Asia. You know, there were a lot of um, sexual orientation um, people, video activists working in that area, you know, being a voice for those people like transgenders and that kind of thing. Um, a lot of that was happening in Asia and still is. But also political. There's so much political stuff happening around the world as well and still in Asia. And that's one of the things that travel for me has always, you know, given me another perspective. Going to another country has given me another perspective on life. And I always come back 
so much more appreciative of what we have here in Aotearoa. Like, you know, we don't experience a lot of the things that some people just are trying every day to stay alive or have food. And I was just talking to somebody about this just yesterday. You know, we I can go to the beach and sometimes I can be the only person on the beach. And in other countries, it's like thousands of people on that beach. So we're, we're so lucky to have space and to have these wide open green spaces where we can go and be, whereas a lot of people in other countries don't have that. So, yeah, overseas travel always gives me perspective on life differently. Were you in Colombia recently? Is that right? I was just thinking that. Yeah, I was. Um, I was there last year. So Colombia is amazing. Such a amazing country amazing people before I went over you know a lot of people said oh you're gonna go over there you know I've heard all about that place you know they were kind of fearful and I wasn't worried about it at all but so I had another exhibition over there and it was from the same conference that Stacey and I had gone to in Vancouver for Isaiah and they had another indigenous forum so I was speaking at that indigenous forum but I also had a collaborative work with another video artist, um, Jamie Berry. She's from here. And Josiah Jordan, who's originally from America. And he is a software developer. And so the work that we took there is called Korangi Kopapa Kaputa Korongo. And you may have seen me post images of it. It's an installation work that I first exhibited a couple of years ago here in Gisborne. And it's a circle work with, with stones hanging from the ceiling from plaited harakeke. And it's a space that you come into that is about, it's a, you walk into the circle and it's a wailanga space or a space that people come in and have, have conversation together. And with the idea that you don't necessarily have to agree with somebody, but is to help people understand each other. So coming into that circle space, but it was also a, a meditative space, a contemplative space where you could kind of come and sit. So I did that work and it was a very analog work. So there was no digital aspect of it as well when I first exhibited it. And then um, when the Columbia um, event came up, I, I approached um, Josiah and Jamie and asked them if they wanted to collaborate and um, with that same work, but just add their digital sound and video into the work. So that's what we took to Columbia. So Josiah Jordan, so the work with the digital aspect, so what he originally did with Jamie was she got her DNA test and what he did was he created the software algorithm that could actually create music from the data in the DNA. Oh. So that was the whole idea of the, of the project to add the digital aspect. And I ended up getting my DNA as well and Josiah did his. So the idea was that all of our DNA data would be incorporated into the soundscape for this particular work that we took to Columbia. And Jamie added a video projection to the work as well, which is focused down in the centre of the work onto the floor in the centre, so it kind of spun around in the middle. And then the soundscape that Josiah had created from all this data had, was playing in the background. And we, it was so beautiful because we had this really nice space just with our work in it and a museum, amazing museum. And so with the work that I've got, I have stones under each stone that's hanging. So you've got one stone on the ground and then the hanging stone above it. So there's seven in total. And so I was lucky enough that the museum gave me some of their 
collection of stones. And so those were the stones that were used at the bottom of my stones that I had brought over. And it was cool because it really grounded the work in the landscape, which is always my intention for that work is to ground it in the landscape wherever I take it to. Because I've taken it to four different places now. And it's amazing how different it expresses itself in different spaces. So yeah, and so that was in Colombia and in Manizales, which is such an amazing place and, and the people are really beautiful. And there's a really beautiful moment where we weren't there. We were actually speaking at the forum, but the museum director, she sent me a photo. Some of the indigenous people who I've forgotten their name had visited the space. And we were on a bus tour at the time after we had finished our forum and we just happened to drive past the museum and they were just coming out. And then not long after she sent these photos of them in our space and they had all gathered together around the circle and were holding hands. And it was it's such a beautiful... I that picture. Yeah, it's just so stunning. And, you know, we never actually met. The funny thing is we never actually met, but we felt like we had connected, even we had not physically met face to face so that was a really lovely connection and these are the indigenous people of Colombia so um, like many places they were colonized so they speak Spanish but these indigenous people have their own indigenous language and we were gifted these amazing books all in their written language with a lot of these stories in it as well too so yeah so that was that was another trip that I that I had last year just hearing your initial description of the work and how it was a space for conversation and then just hearing like all of the different layers of conversation it created, like even the conversation between your local stones and the local stones from the area and like yeah. the nonverbal communication that you've had with so many people with this work. Totally. And honestly, from the very beginning when I created this work, which was interesting because it wasn't the work that I had intended to create for the exhibition. It was a whole new set of work altogether. And it was funny because I was creating photographic works on flax paper and I just hadn't made the paper. And I wasn't happy with the paper to print my photographs on. And I'm like, and I, you know, it was not long out from the exhibition. I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And then this, this work just kind of came out and it's like, wow. And it was totally different, but it was so perfect for the space, for its intention, for it, the story. I mean, the work is called Korangi Kopapa Kapita Korongo, which is the beginning of our karakia that acknowledges some of the Atua Māori, the Māori gods. And those first words are Korangi, Sky Father, Kopapa, Papatua Nuku, the Earth Mother, and Kapita Korongo. So Rungo, Rungo Matane is actually the god of peace, also the god of cultivated food. So for me, that work is, is very much about peace and bringing about peace in the world, not, you know, locally in that conversation in the circle, but also spreading that out globally as well, that message of peace. Because, you know, there's so much happening in the world and I think if we, we don't have to agree, we can't always agree with everybody, but if we can just understand another perspective, I think that's a step to finding peace. Yes, I really do. Powerful. Mm. Yeah. We're reaching the end of our time. So I was wondering, what do you think the one core thing that it is that you'd like to express through uh, your words, through your art, or, or, or should we even just look at your art and let it speak for itself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, well, the first thing that kind of popped into my mind just then was presence. And I think, sometimes I think, I look at social media and I think, oh, you know, it's all the good stuff, you know, and people share all their good stuff. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that doesn't kind of get shared is, you know, it's not, it's not a full picture. And I think, you know, I'm always trying to be present and aware in every moment, but, you know, just recently, like I've just had to just let go of stuff because sometimes I think we just kind of strive wish we strive so much I don't think that's what we should be doing I don't think we should be striving to attain something but they have more presence and and letting go and allowing and awareness right here right now and I think you know going back to water and the flow of water um, looking at that word why also within that word why w-a-i there's wa which is time and space and way 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 is that present time and space so i think if we can be present then we can always be in that flowing state that makes sense beautiful <laughs> yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah well thank you so much for speaking with us yeah Joe. thank you so much for everything oh, so nice to talk to you both I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Joe, and I know this episode was a little bit away from our normal focus of yoga and sometimes I wonder whether our audience will come on the journey with us, but I think Joe has a really unique and wonderful perspective, so I hope you enjoyed coming on this slight detour. I'd really love to get your feedback. You can reach at Flow Artists on Twitter or join the Flow Artists podcast community on Facebook. See you there. It's my birthday on the 10th of February, so why not send me a birthday wish? All right. In our next episode, we are right back in the yoga world, the science of yoga, in fact. We're speaking with yoga teacher, yoga therapist, and author Anne Swanson. We were lucky enough to get an advanced digital copy of her book, Science of Yoga, and it's absolutely fantastic. So we were super excited to be able to speak with her. Look out for that episode in a fortnight. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and used with permission. Get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so, so much for listening. We really do appreciate every single one of you. Aroha nui. Big, big love.